I'll tell you the title of my message before I even get started. It is, uh, it's called The Faithful Dog. So, you guys, uh, does anybody have a faithful dog? Most dogs are faithful. This is uh, not that kind of, of dog. And this is also, for what it's worth, not a, not a message that is one that honestly is going to have you leaving here probably with some kind of warm, fuzzy feelings. It's probably going to be a message that's going to have you leaving, hopefully really thinking a lot about your life. I don't know. I don't know what the Holy Spirit is going to do in, in you um, as you're here tonight. But uh, this is a message that, as I prepared it, was very challenging to me. Um, usually is that way. Usually every week I'm deeply challenged by the things that God is, is, is leading me to bring to you all. So let's, uh, let's pray. Gracious Lord, have your way here in us tonight. During this Lenten season, just just speak to us on repentance. Speak to us on the way that you call us to interact in this world differently than 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 I'm sure we do most of the time. Give us a new set of, of eyes. Let us see the world how you see it. Let us think deeply about your scriptures. Let us think deeply about your life, Jesus. Let us think deeply about our friends and the impact we have on them. Let us think deeply about our enemies and the impact we have on them. Let us think deeply about just acquaintances and the impact we have on them. Let us take seriously the life that you've given us and let us embrace the mystery that is you, Christ, and you forming in us. Amen. So over this series, I've had a question that I continually present, and it's had some variation on it from week to week, and I have it honed down to to this, and this is the question I want you to think on as we discuss what we're going to tonight. What does Jesus' life and ministry teach us about how to deal with people who are hated and despised, or hated or despised, even people that we may hate or despise. How does Jesus' life and his ministry, what does it teach us? What does it teach us about how to deal with people who are hated and despised? Do you hate anybody? Have you? You don't have to answer. <laughs> I pretty much know the answer already. Anyway. Is there some group of people that you despise or have a hard time with or that make you kind of nauseated? Has there ever been that time in your life? When I ask this question about people who are hated and despised, I'm really not just talking about any person that could be hated or despised necessarily. I really have in view people who are, particularly with this message, social outcasts. Or as as Brandy shared on her Facebook page, people that are misfits. People that are hated because of where they're from, where they were born, their skin color, their particular manifestations of brokenness and sin in their lives, their lack of wealth, their social standing, it's things like that. Those are the things in particular that I 
have in mind when I want us to consider what Jesus' life and ministry teaches us about how to handle people. Keeping in mind that Jesus handles us that way too because we, in many ways, can be those people, right? I want to recap some history. So bear with me on the history lesson. Some of you love it, some of you don't, but let's, let's go here. We're going to talk about the kingdom of, kingdoms of Israel, but I, I need to back up in the story just a little bit in order to set the stage for this message. You guys have heard of the biblical character Noah, right? I'm going to offer just a really short, abbreviated version of Noah's genealogy. So Noah's son Shem had a son named Terah, who is the ancestral line of Abraham. And you've heard of this Abraham guy, right? Right? So Abram becomes Abraham. Abraham is promised land and descendants by God. He had a son, Isaac, the son of promise. You follow through his family line. You get Jacob, who is renamed Israel, who had 12 sons, who become the 12 tribes. You guys with me so far? So we're going from Noah to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to the 12 sons, the 12 tribes. And then there's the one son, Joseph, into, who, who goes to Egypt. He's cast away by his brothers. He goes to Egypt and ends up, his whole family is there because of a great famine. So they're stuck there in Egypt. And then, then we have Moses at some point come onto the scene, right? At some point, right? He comes onto the scene and he's going to take the people who are being oppressed, who are these descendants of those 12 children, and free them from this bondage in Egypt. And they, they get free and they end up wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. They don't get to go into the promised land for a long time. We can talk about all night why that is, but... They wander. They don't know what to do with their salvation is really what it is. They've been saved out of Egypt, and they don't know what to do, so they're just going to not trust God and just wander around forever. But then, like, this dude shows up, this Joshua. You've heard of Joshua, right? You can read about him in uh, Joshua. <laughs> <laughs> Among other places, for sure. And Joshua is the one that brought the descendants of these 12 tribes into the promised land. And then crazy stuff happens. Like, crazy stuff happens in the biblical narrative at this point. I'm going to read from Deuteronomy. In the cities of the nations of the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them, the Hittites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. So just, I'm not going to go into this a whole bunch at this point, but just keep in mind that as soon as the people make it into the promised land, God promised them this land, and God says, apparently, go kill all the people that are currently in the land and take the land for yourselves. We can fast forward then all the way to the period at this point of the kings. Israel sees that the other nations around them have kings, and they want an earthly king. God's like, I don't think that's a great idea, but mm, all right. Right? And things don't go very well, but of course uh, Saul is the first king. David is the second king. And one of the things that David does, it talks about it in 2 Samuel, is that he creates a capital city 
And at this point, apparently, Jerusalem had been taken back over by some descendants of the Canaanites, the Jebusites. And so reading from 2 Samuel 5, 6, and 7, the king and his men marched into Jerusalem and attacked the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. Okay? So Noah to Abraham to Jacob to the 12 tribes to into Egypt to out of Egypt to into the wilderness to into the promised land through Joshua to taking this land and conquering a whole bunch of people. Some people say, if you want your faith to be challenged, read the Bible. So from that point, we have many years of bad kings, good kings, bad kings, good kings, Israel not living out God's call to be his people in the way he desires them to be, which is part of God's plan, knowing that we're sinful, broken, fallible human beings and that we aren't very good to one another. So we end up then, this united kingdom and started with David, it becomes a divided kingdom. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom of Israel. Israel up north, Judah in the south. And the kingdoms then that are divided, each have their own king, they're destroyed. We're talking like, you know, conquered by foreign rulers. Assyria conquers the northern kingdom. Babylon conquers the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom becomes what we know of as Noah in the biblical story as Samaria. The southern kingdom of Judah, unlike the northern kingdom, is actually reestablished after Persia conquers Assyria. Sorry, Babylon. They're allowed to go home and rebuild the temple, but they're not entirely free. The northern kingdom, the formerly the kingdom formerly known as Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, remains Samaria, except for you guys remember this that you have been here. The northernmost part becomes Galilee. Yeah, and that's where Jesus is from. Jesus is from Galilee. So if you can picture this little spit of land, you got Galilee way up at the top, Samaria in the middle, Judah down below with Jerusalem in in, in Judah, and Within that lower portion of Judah, that's where the Jewish people were worshiping Yahweh again in the temple. So far in this series, we've talked about the Samaritan woman at the well, how Jesus had to go through Samaria, even though technically most Jews didn't travel through Samaria, they went around Samaria. But Jesus had to have this encounter with this Samaritan woman. And we talked about how Jesus was just doing some barrier breaking in his care for this woman who was the despised of the despised. And we talked about how that challenges how we view, again, despised people in our world, people of different faiths, of different religions. How do we engage them? How do we talk to them? How do we love them? We from there talked about the parable of the Good Samaritan specifically talking about how no one is to be excluded from the love you're called to show your neighbor. You can't like use scripture, one term of neighbor or brother or sister for that matter, as a loophole to get out of loving some people, putting a bunch of extra qualifications on. It's about who we are supposed to be. 
So, so far we've talked about Samaritans mainly. Samaritans at least had a connection with the Jewish people. They were, you know, part of the 12 tribes originally in, in some sense, right? There's some kind of connection that they had at least. And I don't know if that made it in some ways better or worse. But I would say there's a sense now we're branching out in the text we're going to look at tonight even farther. If the Samaritans were despised, the people that we're going to talk about tonight were even more despised. Biblically speaking, much more despised. We're going to talk about moving from, honestly, just kind of despised to like full-blown enemies. I'm going to read this text for us, and then we're going to walk through it a little bit. It's in Matthew 15, 21 through 28. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me, she said. He replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know that we grasp, and maybe you already are the way I've set this message up. I don't know if we grasp just how crazy this story is. Like, we can gloss over and be like, yeah, that's a nice story about the... It's actually not that nice of a story. Wait a second. Jesus seems like he's a jerk. But it's that kind of nice story. It all works out well in the end, right? And she had a great faith. and I did, 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 Right? But, but like, we got to, like, slow down a little bit and just consider what's going on here, okay? So, first of all, verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. I think I have a map. Is the map? I got a map. We're going to try a map again. Last time it didn't work out so well for me. You see the map in there? There we go. I don't know if you can see it. But like the white part, I'm going to, oh, that's got to be nice on the recording. So there's Judea, Samaria, the darker green part is Galilee, and then Tyre and Sidon are up north, or up, far, up above that even farther. Do you see it where Syria and Phoenicia are? So this is why the this, this story is somehow called the Syrophoenician woman, the story of the Syrophoenician woman. So just so you get an idea of what the geography is like, it's that little skinny piece of land up there. So he's not going south to Galilee. He's moving farther up north to even more distant territories with apparently a whole entirely different group of people. We're told in verse 22 that a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. I mean, it's at this point that we should stop and say, a Canaanite? A Canaanite? Are you kidding me? A Canaanite? There's a Canaanite woman that's coming to Jesus? What? I mean, we were, I, you remember the Canaanites? I just talked about the Canaanites a minute ago. Like, those are the people that Joshua was supposed to go in and, like, kill them all. Those are the people that were in the city because the Jebusites are descendants of a tribe of Canaanites that were in, Jer in Jerusalem that, 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 that King David went in and conquered in order to make Jerusalem their capital city. 
Canaanite? A Canaanite woman? Goes to Jesus? Think about the fact that this Canaanite woman is crying out to, listen, just think about this, a man named Jesus, who she is calling the son of David. (laughs) Jesus and Joshua is the same name. One through through Hebrew, the other through Aramaic and into Greek. So she's crying out to a man with the same name as the one who historically destroyed them as a people, kicked their butts, pillaged their towns, destroyed their families. She's crying out to this guy, this man named Jesus, and she's calling him son of David? can't gloss over this kind of detail. This is, a, this is crazy. Jesus. Jesus, Joshua, the first Hebrew conqueror and the son of David, she's crying out to him. She's crying out to him for mercy. So think about this. Jesus is to this woman what the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Samaritans, and the Romans were to Jesus. The people who had conquered them, killed them, and sent them into exile. Even if we were to stop at this point, just considering what this Syrophoenician Canaanite woman is doing... Like, this is bold. This is kind of crazy, actually. Like, what in the world of Jesus' reputation had gotten around that she would think that she could go to him and he could do something and would do something about her situation? Something got to her. She had heard something about this. Jesus, son of David, that was quite unlike his ancestors. I mean, I can get it because I'll tell you, if I heard of somebody that was working miracles and I had a child who was sick and I thought there was no hope for them to get healthy otherwise, I would go. I would go to them. I would want more than the air I breathed for my child to be healed. Like We live in a world where we have Doctors that are really amazingly gifted by God to help people. But in this culture, not so much, right? Mortality rate of children was huge. I can't imagine what that's like. I think, unfortunately, that's one of those ways we assimilate into the world where we don't give God the glory for the things and wisdom he's given to doctors. We should spend more time giving praise to God for the way that he has brought things into our world that bring healing to us and participate with God giving life to us, maintaining it, taking care of it. We need to praise God. Darren and I talk about that topic a lot. Because her need is great, and apparently, again, she's heard of this Jesus, son of David, this love that he has, 
and that his power is, is greater than her, her desperation, her need. I want to, if I can just kind of call this an excursus, you know, kind of like rabbit trail, run off on a second. I want to ask a question, and I'll just leave it out there, I think. So this, 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 this woman, this Syrophoenician woman, has brought, this Canaanite woman, has brought her demon-possessed daughter boldly to Jesus, knowing of his love and his mercy and his power to try and do something about her daughter. And I can't help but wonder if, the, if Jesus, if God, if the biblical writers too, didn't have in mind a sense in which they want us to think about the connection between this demon-possessed girl and the impact of Canaanite oppression. Is she a bit of an individual example of the pain that the Canaanite people had experienced? Because that happens other places in Scripture. As a matter of fact, when Jesus heals a little girl, little girl get up, that's actually imaging what God is doing as bringing to life all of Israel. Is this maybe something like that? Where God is going back and healing, working to heal the wounds that have happened in this broken, broken situation of the Canaanites being destroyed by, by the Israelites? Is that what Jesus is doing? I can't... I, person, I can't help but think it's not, I think there's something going on there of great significance. In verse 23, and this this story is peculiar in so many ways, Jesus didn't answer a word. So she's crying out, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus is like, "Eh." so his disciples, his disciples came to him and urged him, but not like to do something, but to get rid of her, you know? I mean, like, can you send her away? Because she keeps crying out after us. Like, she's a nuisance. She's bugging me. Can you just get rid of this Canaanite woman who's got apparently some problems with her daughter? Just, why doesn't Jesus say a word? I'm going to throw a lot of questions at you, and I don't have answers to them. Why doesn't Jesus say a word? It does kind of remind me of the story of Lazarus a little bit. When Jesus hears of Lazarus being sick unto death, and waits quite a long time before he goes to see him. And by the time he does, Lazarus is already dead. That's peculiar in its own right. It kind of reminds me of that a little bit. Jesus is just like, he's staying tight-lipped. He's not doing anything. He's not saying anything. I also wonder, I mean, I know you probably can relate. Are there times in your life when you're crying out and it feels like God ain't saying anything? If not... If God just answers your prayers immediately all the time, I want to talk to you. I, like, seriously want to talk to you and have you pray for me. (laughs) So the disciples, so Jesus doesn't say a word. The disciples do say a word. Of course, it's this word to urge Jesus to send her away. So how does this compare to other responses by the disciples to different situations? Two, two responses of the disciples to different situations that are similar to this come to mind. The first one is, praise God, it's not quite as strong as, like, let's rain down fire on the Samaritans, right? I mean, it's just like, send her away. It maybe even reminds me more 
of, uh, of the disciples trying to keep the little kids away from Jesus. Send them away. Send them away, those little nuisances. Send this Canaanite woman away. She's just a little nuisance. In all those cases, though, they're not interested in helping. The disciples aren't. And, okay, how about church people today? Do church people today get sick and tired of listening to people just asking for God's help all the time and just like, oh, man, just shut up. Go away. I don't want to talk to you anymore. You're just always complaining. You always got something you need. Yang, yang, yang. Maybe. Maybe. We could probably learn something from this as it relates simply to how we respond to people who have need today. Are we going to listen? Are we going to pray? Are we going to help? Or do we just want to get rid of people? When we just get rid of people, they just become somebody else's problem, right? <laughs> Jesus answered in 24, and he, we don't know for sure whether he's answering the disciples or if he's answering the woman to begin with, or both. But he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Why is it that we don't know for sure who Jesus is talking about here? Is there any significance to the fact that Jesus only answers her after the disciples asked to send her away? Was maybe part of Jesus' point in saying that to see what the disciples would do? To see if the disciples understood that Jesus was compassionate with people? Maybe. And when Jesus does respond, is he really truly basically saying, sorry, you're not of the right group of people, I'm not here to help you? Because that's certainly what it sounds like, right? Like, we don't need to sugarcoat it too much. I mean, it's just kind of like, I'm sorry, you're not part of Israel, you're a Canaanite. Good luck with that. Again, that's what it sounds like he's saying, right? Just keep that thought in mind as we consider how this story turns out. The woman came then and knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Man, Jesus, golly. I thought you were nice. That doesn't sound nice at all. I can't, I can't imagine saying that to anybody. Well, I really can't. So she comes up and kneels at his feet and begs again for help for her possessed daughter. And what? Jesus is calling her a dog? That was a common way of speaking of Gentiles. Jews regularly spoke of Gentiles as, as dogs. Is that okay? And, and, and not to like try to smooth the rough edges off. Is Jesus, is this, is, this, is this really how Jesus feels about her? Does he really like see her as, in, as an insignificant little dog thing? Jews, Jews didn't like dogs, by the way. They were unclean animals that they didn't have as pets, but the Canaanites, Gentiles in general did. So, It seems as though at this point it's just Jesus' disciples and the woman. Yeah. So, it begs a question, if Jesus 
didn't intend to help anyone in Tyre and Sidon, then why did he go up there? Maybe. I was thinking maybe if he wasn't there to help, it was just a mini vacation or something. Going to go vacation in uh, Tyre and Sidon. Here their hot springs are very nice. It is on the coast. Right? Yeah. Just think, think on these things as we keep going. Think on these things as you go back and reflect on this story in the years to come. Her response is flipping brilliant, though. Right? It's like, oh my goodness, wow. You know, we thought last week Jesus kind of had a zinger when it came to the expert in the law when he's like, well, you're the expert. You tell me what it says. Right? Here, she's like, oh, yes, it is, Lord. Yes, yes, actually. Actually, it is. You know, as a matter of fact, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Wow. That's like super savvy. That's like, that's like a bold mom that definitely isn't going to take no for an answer because she sees the guy there that can do something about the problem that her child has, and she's just she's going she's gonna to find a way to get him to do it. Yeah, of course, it's okay. It's okay to throw to dogs. Even dogs get crumbs. Come on. In that, in that world of honor and shame and challenge and repost, like, she kind of... She kind of, if, if this is, she kind of gets Jesus, right? She kind of gets him. She's like, okay, boom. And Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Great faith. Canaanite woman. Great faith. Did you... Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's a great sense in which what he's doing with that Canaanite woman is all about how the disciples are supposed to learn concerning how peoples of the world around them are supposed to be viewed, how they're supposed to be loved, how they're supposed to be thought about, which is exactly it's right where we're going. So she has great faith. Jesus praises like her great faith. What is, what is her, what is this, what is this outcome? What is this? direction through the story ends up say what does it say about faith what does it say about faith what what is faith if that's great faith what is faith is it a boldness trust certainly trust conviction believing what you guys have any other good words for faith that would describe this woman Yeah. Stubborn. Yeah. You could say that, right? I can't say the words I want to say. I do want to, but I'll hold back. Courage. Courage. Absolutely. Very courageous. She's very courageous in what she's doing. I mean, there's a sense that, okay, and she's going to this guy named Jesus slash Joshua, son of David, that there's a boldness not really knowing for sure how he's going to respond to her. But she's willing to risk her life for the sake of her child. I mean, she's heard this reputation of Jesus, obviously, and trusts something about him that that's not going to happen, that he can do something. 
but she's She's absolutely. She just keeps going. Confident. Yeah. It's a good word, Steve. Say it again. Speaking truth to power. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, we have to ask a hard question at this point. What does her outcome say about the faith of people who don't have that kind of outcome? Do they just not have good enough faith? Is their faith deficient? They just need to have more faith? No. No. Nope. Matter of fact, there's some sense in which an even greater faith is a faith that has that kind of boldness, even though you don't have the outcome that you want, but you keep going back and back and back and trusting and trusting and trusting. Or... As the Apostle Paul does, you just hear, no, sorry, you're just going to have to live with that thorn in your flesh. Just, my grace is sufficient for you, just trust that. Right? That's a great faith, too. We have to name that, because if not, we end up with this thing called, with many variations of it, the Word of Faith movement, where like anybody, if you just have enough faith, get what you want, and if you don't have enough faith, you don't get what you want. That way, if you don't get what you want, you don't have enough faith. Faith is like a substance, something that you almost like tangibly have, and if you just get enough of it, God will give you what you want. Yeah. That's like God is not a vending machine. He's not. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. But not my will but yours be done, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So Jesus had said earlier that he came for the lost sheep of Israel. But he ultimately grants this Canaanite woman's request slash demand. <laughs> Did he change his mind? Was he like, okay, Father, I know you sent me for the lost sheep of Israel, but you know what, there's this Canaanite woman, and I really want to help her out. So can you, like, is that what the point is here? Uh, I don't think so. I think instead there's a relationship between what's going on in the lost sheep, and what's going on in the Gentiles. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Part of the call of Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles, one that somehow seemed to have gotten lost for the sake of rather than just wanting to continue conquering people. However, we are to view that instead of actually loving people, instead of actually pursuing the things that God really longs of us, mercy, faithfulness, justice. I think Jesus did exactly what he went to do in this encounter with this Canaanite woman. And I think it powerfully is about restoring a people who have been hurt, beat down, oppressed, It's much the same of what happened with the people of Israel. As we've talked about over and over, they were a, end up being beat, oppressed people. And God restored them, comforted them, cared for them. It's the same kind of care and comfort God wants the world to experience. Not just a group of people, but he wants the world to experience. So I want to close with actually a bunch of questions. A bunch of a whole bunch more questions that I've been chewing on and that I want you to chew on. 
And they are related, for the most part, to this initial question of what does Jesus' life and ministry teach us about how to deal with people who are hated and despised. I didn't intend to go here, but I just every time I get to that thought and to that, that point in this message, I cannot stop. I cannot not think of Corey Ten Boom. And I'm not just talking about the work that she did to, to hide people, to hide Jews, but namely the work that she did to bring forgiveness to Germany afterward. If you don't know that story, just go read that story. It's profound, it's beautiful, it's amazing the way that she felt and others felt called to go and extend forgiveness to the people that had perpetrated such serious, heinous crimes against humanity. What does this encounter say concerning how Jesus feels about Canaanites? And what does it say about Old Testament ideas about these same people? We just have to ask that question. Like Jesus is loving them. He loves her. He heals her daughter. But we hear of these stories of genocide of the Canaanites in the Old Testament. We can't shrink back from this difficulty of that being within our biblical text. Is Jesus challenging those views? Or is God just dealing differently with the situation now? I would want you to think about what the implications of either of those things are. Do you guys understand what I'm saying with those questions? If Jesus is going to this Canaanite woman and loving her and healing her child, what does that say about the Old Testament commands to kill all those people? What, is, what does that say? There's, there's a challenge there. I just want you to think about it. I just want you to think about it. What does it say that this woman has greater faith than most of the sheep of Israel? This foreigner has more faith. Jesus doesn't commend the great faith of too many within the biblical, in the, in the gospel narratives. But this Canaanite woman is praised for her great faith. What, is that, what does that say? What does that say about the people that we view that may or may not have great faith? That maybe they're not all. Can somebody, can somebody that isn't all the way in the church have great faith? Yeah? Right? I think we have to say, yeah. Right? Like, I, I hope that there's something that comes along with that this understanding of Jesus. But certainly they can. It'd be strange when people think they can't. What does Jesus' response teach us about the grace of our Lord? It's kind of big. <laughs> Bigger than we know. What does it teach us about the faith of people who are in need? What does that teach us about the faith of people who seem to not have any need? And what does it say in general about people, about outsiders, about misfits, and about people outside the right thinking about God? You know, it doesn't, uh, having all the right 
ideas about God does not make one in a right relationship with God. Right? What does this story say about us? What does it say about us? What does it say about the church? What does it say about how we should respond to the world around us? What kind of challenge does this offer us? What does it say about reconciling with enemies and seeking their best? What are some of the things that go on in our head that keep us from doing just that? Fear? What does it say about our call to go and seek the healing of nations that maybe we have ravaged? And who are you? Who are you in this story? In this story, who are you? Are you Jesus? Are you one of the disciples? Are you the Canaanite woman? Are you the girl? Or maybe, yes? We want to be Jesus. We are probably an awful lot like the disciples. We have the need of the Canaanite woman. And hopefully we have the bold faith of the Canaanite woman. We certainly have the need that the girl has. To be given life and to be delivered. Take a few minutes and let's pray. And consider who who maybe you are of those four people right now in your life. Gracious Father, there's so much mystery to the things that you have done and that you do. Mystery right within our biblical text. Help us, Lord God, to recognize that, to embrace that, to walk into that, and ultimately, though, Jesus, to desire to become like you. I pray for people that are here tonight that maybe they Maybe they're, maybe they're doing a good job of following you and living out and desiring to seek reconciliation, speaking hope into the lives of people around them. Outcasts, misfits, outsiders. Or maybe there's people here tonight that need prayer because they're like one of the disciples and they just simply are getting tired of listening to people have so much need. Be with them, meet them in that place, Lord God, and empower them to become more like you and have the power to be like you, to bring transformation into people's lives. I wish it was as simple in many cases as it seemed to be for you, Jesus. Um, And I know it, it can be, but it feels like we just have to continually seek to be faithful in walking out that transforming experience for people, with people. Or maybe there's people here that are like the Canaanite woman, that they're just coming before you and they want to have bold faith. They long to have bold faith, and maybe they do have bold faith in the face of a difficult, difficult circumstance. Lord Jesus, whether you, uh, whether you just bring some instantaneous transformation into, into their lives or into their situation, or whether it's a, my grace is sufficient for you, or whether it's a keep asking, 
my son. Keep asking, my daughter. Whatever, whatever your response is, build their faith, build their trust at this point in time. Meet them, Lord Jesus. Meet them in Tyre and Sidon and Centralia and Shehalis. Or maybe we're just a girl who just feel powerless to do anything and hope and long that maybe our mom or our dad or a friend or somebody will come before you on our behalf. Father, I just pray for this group of people here tonight that maybe in many ways collectively represent every person in this story. At the end of the day, Jesus, conform us, make us to be like you. Help us, Lord Jesus, to find hope in you and to bring that hope into this world that so desperately needs it. Thank you for inspiring us. Thank you for the peace we find in you. Thank you for hope. Thank you for joy. We love you, Jesus, so very much. In your name.